Today in the Lazy D&D Talk Show, we're going to talk about a new product that I am putting out with Scott Gray and Teo Sabadia called Forge of Foes. You're going to learn all about it, and you can sign up to be notified about it. I'm going to talk about some new content for the City of Arches that I've been working on on Patreon. We're going to look at the future of D&D based on the interviews with Kyle Brinks that he's given across a few different YouTube channels. I'm going to talk about the Escape from Undergarden Kickstarter by JVC Perry and the Encyclopedia 2 lore book and toolbox by Studio Agate, Kickstarter that's going on. And we're going to cover the first batch of questions from February 2023 for the Patreon Q&A. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things in tabletop RPGs. This show is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want to get access to the City of Arches source book, to Uncovered Secrets, to a dedicated Discord channel, to the monthly Q&A, to a bunch of other exclusive things, you can do so by joining the Sly Flourish Patreon. The link is down in the show notes below. And to the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your support. Take a look at that, my friends. I have partnered with my friends Teos Abadia and Scott Fitzgerald Gray to work on a book to help GMs build, modify, and run 5th edition compatible monsters. Most monster books that you find out there are big monster books packed with monsters you can pull and reskin and use. This is a book that they, they offer you the fish and we love our fish. We love, we, I have many, many creature books and I love them dearly. This is the book about how to fish. What if you want to build your own monsters? What if you want to build your own monsters in only a few minutes? What if you just want to customize some of the monsters that you have, giving them interesting little things that you can just drop right on them to make them more exciting for your players? What if you want a whole book about different kinds of advice for how to run monsters? What kind of encounters to run? How do you run more tactical focused encounters? How do you make environments more interesting? All these different topics are covered in Forge of Foes, a book that we are putting out on Kickstarter. We're launching on Kickstarter on March 1st. So you're going to hear me talk a lot about it. I hope that's okay with you. Uh, but we're going to talk a lot about this book. Next week, I hope to show a preview of the book that we're going to release as part of the Kickstarter. If you want to learn more about this Kickstarter, it's going to be really cool. It's going to be a really, really fun book. Look at the cover. The cover art by, by Jack Kaiser. He's done all of the art for all of my other, all of the other books that I've done. Fantastic work. And this is really, a, it's going to be an awesome book to help you quickly build monsters or modify monsters or customize monsters or just look at how to run monsters in different ways. How all the different techniques definitely falls into the lazy DM style of advice that you've enjoyed from me in the past. The Kickstarter is on March 1st. There is a page right now where you can be notified on the launch of the Kickstarter. You can find a link to this down in the show notes below. Notify on launch doesn't require that you're committing to anything. You will just get an email notification that says, hey, the Kickstarter is launched and now you can come and take a look. Lots of really great stuff. Going to be a really, really fun project and on the Kickstarter, of course, we will offer a free preview that anybody can enjoy that has tools you can use right away to make your monsters really awesome for your 5e games. So check it out. Coming soon, March 1st. We're really excited for it. We've been working really hard. We're working for a year on it. Scott and Teos and I have been working for a year putting this together, and we're really excited to be able to launch it on Kickstarter. In addition to, this, to the Forge of Foes, I've also been working on the City of Arches. The City of Arches is a source book that I have put out to patrons of Sly Flourish. The patrons of Sly Flourish have watched it grow over time. And the idea was to have a campaign location that is that can be dropped into any major world that you could break into pieces and use, or you could just plop this one city in your own campaign and use it as either a small thing or even build an entire campaign. It's been growing every month. I've been adding new things to it. It's 60 pages at this point, has lots of new material. And I wanted to talk about some of the new things that I've added over the past month. I got, every month or so, I like to talk about some of the things that I've added. Patrons of Sly Flourish already have access to all of this. You can go, go to your Patreon account, go to your rewards. You can see City of Arches. When you click it, you get a new version of it that includes includes all the things that I'm talking about today. So if you have had it and you haven't seen this, you can you can pick it up. One of the things I added last month, I think I've already talked about this, but I'm going to give you a little highlight of it again because it's a really big deal, is I added a whole sort of mini source book in the source book for a location called Sunken Revia. Sunken Revia is a really deep adventure location intended for characters of fifth level and above. That's very dangerous. Lots of different places to explore. Lots of 
monsters to fight. Not nearly as nice as all the stuff that's up there in the city of Arches Above. And I have a whole section of it that talks about what secrets it's got, how you get there, the different factions there that are at play, and of course the locations. I commissioned Chloe Beland to do the map. Chloe, Chloe has done the other maps that you can find here. And she did a really, really awesome map that kind of shows all of the different adventure locations. So you could probably spend five or 10 levels exploring this area, working with the factions, fighting all the monsters, exploring all the places that exist in here. All different locations, all different kinds of, of you know, monsters to fight. It's really designed to be that sort of lost city underneath the city and has all different kinds of creatures from different tiers. There's like a fallen angel down there. There's a huge dragon down there. There's all different kinds of stuff that you can find. Here's a whole like random encounter section. So that whole section of the adventure, it's about, I think it's about 10 or 11 pages just for that. It gives you a really cool adventure location. And again, like everything else in this, you can rip that part out and drop it in any adventure that you want. It doesn't have to be tied to the City of Arches to use, but it's definitely a cool part. It gets in this idea that the City of Arches is layers and layers and layers of different areas crypts and lost chambers and hidden warrens and seedy underbelly cities and then places like this that are that are filled with adventure so i added that a cup a month ago the most recent stuff i added has actually been some stat blocks so I'm, i've expanded on the villains of the city of arches section i had started this by adding a villain called Brother Cavill. So Brother Cavill was sort of an, an evil priest, like a priest of murder. And I wanted to build a really, I, I've used this kind of stat block in my games before, a really hardcore, he's a challenge rating nine, but he's intended to be fought as a solo creature. He has legendary resistances, for example, and really, really dangerous. And we've had, I've, I've seen some folks in the, in the, in the Sly Flourish Discord server talk about running him and how he really pushed people to the edge. So if you're looking for like a single powerful priest, evil priest that you want to drop into your game this brother brother cavill can can do it i actually commissioned art for 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 brother cavill here that i thought was really cool so i wanted to expand i was like i really kind of enjoyed that and what are some other stat blocks i would like to drop in so i created a few i have the cult fanatics of the city of arches i really love the cult fanatic stat block i use i love cults but i really love the cult fanatic in particular and i was like what would a cult fanatic look like that was using some of the more modern 5e monster design that idea of like instead of relying upon spells for challenge rating you instead give them abilities that that make them dangerous on their own and the cult this cult fanatic is an example still same these are all drop-in replacements you can pop out your existing cult fanatic drop this new one in works works perfectly well and this cult fanatic cr2 and the main thing is that the cult fanatic has these two two attacks with its divine blade the divine blade is sort of like the equivalent of your spirit weapon slash your you know all the different kinds of things that you would normally expect like a cult fanatic to do they're kind of combine them together into this divine blade which they get to make two attacks with the divine blade it is either in melee or ranged which is really efficient it means you get one attack that you do either right next to you or far away i think it goes 30 feet out and it does six radiant or necrotic damage you get to decide what damage type radiant or necrotic that they inflict i'm gonna i expand it on this later and then as a bonus action once per day, until the end of the next turn or until it hits with a spell attack, the cult fanatic gains advantage on spell attacks. If it hits with a spell attack and inflicts an extra three radiant or necrotic damage and the target must succeed on a DC 12 wisdom saving throw or be blinded. So essentially one time as a bonus action, it can sort of infuse itself with this energy and attack with advantage. And if it hits, they have to make a, they take extra damage and they make a saving throw and then it's expended. It doesn't do it all the time. It doesn't one time. So that's why it says until the end of its next turn or until it hits with a spell attack. Once it hits with a spell attack, it no longer, it no longer does that. So I thought that was a really fun way to kind of beef up a, a cult fanatic. It's still have some spells healing word command and hold person the expectation is aren't isn't that you're using those spells the expectation is using the actions and the bonus actions in combat so i was like that's cool let's do some other ones what about the mage stat block the mage stat block is another one where most of its challenge rating is buried in its spells what would a mage look like where you took that out and put it into its normal action so i created these exiled mages of cartan cartan is sort of like the the mage guild of the city of arches very shadowy stuff going on there really they're they, you know definitely like shady things happening there and some of the mages are too extreme for them and get kicked out 
And this is an example. And the Exiled Mage is, again, a challenge rating six monster. This is a fun thing that I had where the damage inflicted by the Exiled Mage's attacks befit the Mage's study discipline. Different Mages study different sort of effects. And when they do, the damage type of their attacks change. So you could have an Acid Mage, a Poison Mage, a Radiant Mage, a Thunder Mage. And all you have to do is change out the damage type and it changes the whole flavor of the Mage. So that makes this one stat block really flexible. Exile Mage makes two attacks with its Arcane Spear. Again, melee or range attack. 22 points of damage, really high because of CR6, and changes based on the, the, the area study. And then an Arcane Blast is essentially like a fireball. Bonus actions, step between worlds. It can teleport. Basically, it does like a Misty Step. And then reactions, it can either do an Arcane Shield or a Spell Reflection. Spell Reflection is like a like a Dispel Mag or like a, like a Counter Spell, only it can take the spell and shoot it somewhere else really fun so the exiled mage is there too i like the white stat block a lot but i always thought the white was a little weaker so i created a tomb white stat block that does more damage here's a whole tomb white stat block and then the big one the lich of the nameless king i love the lich stat block and i wanted to make my own and i wanted a simple lich stat block so i created a cr21 lich stat block you can see it's not huge it should be significantly easier to run than the straight lich stat block, but still equally dangerous. It still feels like a lich. So those were all the things that I added to the City of Arches this past month. Again, every month I add a couple things. I'm already starting to work on the new things that we're adding to it. So really fun. And again, joining the Patreon, the patroness life flourish, you get access to this directly. Stay as on as a patron and you get access to the things as it comes out. Patrons, thank you so much for helping me support this product. It's been so much fun to do. I really enjoyed it. It's a great joy for me to work on the City of Arches. This past week, Kyle Brinks, who is, I forget exactly, he is the producer of D&D, creative producer of D&D. He has a title and he corrects people when you don't get the title right, but I'm not going to get the title right. I'm sorry, Kyle. I don't remember exactly, but he's kind of the head of the creative team over at D&D. And he has been going around to various like high profile channels on YouTube to talk about what happened with the OGL thing. I'm kind of exhausted continuing to talk about the OGL thing. And all of these three interviews, three black, half, three black halflings did an interview with him. Alpha Stream, my friend Teos did an interview with him and Ginny D did an interview with him. So if you, there are these three videos, you can find links to all these three videos in the show notes below and you can hear what he has to say. So the, the one with three black halflings and with Alpha Stream were recorded and put out directly. They're about an hour long. And then Ginny did an abbreviated one that was about 15 minutes where she took some, some of the key stuff that he talked about and gave some commentary. So lots of different things you can get there. What to me, there's lots of talk about what happens inside Wizards of the Coast, what happened for this event, what the timing was like, all kinds of discussion like that. I'm not that interested in that. I wasn't really that interested in that. Instead, I really cared about like what the inputs and outputs are. I care about what we're doing in the future. What 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 does this mean and what are what's going to happen to D&D in the future? And so these are the key points that I kind of picked out from this that I think are true. One is that they he was very clear that one D&D is still intended to be fifth edition compatible that it is backward compatible with fifth edition he said that they are going to either update the 5.1 srd or they're going to put out new documents that that act as a bridge between the 5.1 srd and the stuff they're doing with 1dnd and that that material would be out under the same creative commons buy license that's a great intention and i hope they do that we of course have to wait and see that they actually do and the problem is it could be years before we see that so he can say that now but who knows what happens over the next year we know what we've got now but things can change, right? And and one thing that we've seen is things can change and the world is unpredictable. This this situation is unpredictable. So we can hope, but the intention is there and I believe him. I, I, when I hear him say that that was what their intention is, I believe that is what their intention is now. Hopefully that remains their intention long enough that that actually happens once once D&D once one D&D comes out. He did bring up the whole question of like on the digital side, like there's rumors like, oh, are they going to stop printing books? And he said like, look, we're going to make what people buy, which makes sense. The only question about that so he's saying like, you know, we'll, we'll do digital to help with digital. We're going to do physical because people like physical. We don't have any plans on pulling anything away unless there's no need for it anymore. The question is cost. That when you're running a big company and you're a bit desperate, which it feels like Wizards of the Coast is, a little, if you look at their stocks and you look at how much they paid for D&D Beyond, it seems like they might be a little bit desperate. That it seems reasonable that they might say, look, these things, certain things are costing us a lot. And if we could figure out a way to re reduce their cost, we don't have to do them. So even if they're profitable, the cost to maintain them might be high enough that they stop. I don't think they're going to stop producing physical books, but they might pr stop producing as many physical books and might move to producing more digital stuff because it's a lot cheaper to produce digital stuff. 
We will see. So I'm not saying that we know, but his main point is that digital is an and, not an or. We're not cutting off one source in order to do another source. We're going to do everything and then stuff that is profitable, we're going to put money there and put energy there and the stuff that isn't profitable, we'll probably do less of. The question is, will it be profitable to keep printing books? I don't know. We don't know. AlphaStream, Teos, put him on the point saying, hey, are you going to commit to continuing support for VTTs? This has been a big question that I had. It's something that when I had an opportunity to bring my questions to some of these influencers, say, hey, maybe you want to ask these questions. How, what does this mean for vir your, your current relationships with virtual tabletops? And in my opinion, the answers that Kyle gave were definitely waffly. They were, I love VTTs. And we know that VTTs grew a lot and we made a lot of money. He didn't say this exactly, but we essentially made a lot of money. As Roll20 built up, obviously they bought more of our stuff and that means we made money. So why wouldn't we? He didn't say this but he's like so it did very well for us so we love our vtts and he said things like and i believe in the strength of the competition of these things that we want to bring out better products not just we don't want to compete i don't want to compete by hurting other people i want to compete by putting out better stuff and teo said that's what you're saying is that what wizards of the coast is saying and kyle said something along the lines of well things change and we didn't expect things that like roll 20 and one bookshelf would now be one company so you know we can't really say and I was like, oh, oh, gird your loins, gird your virtual loins, because he did not commit to D&D continuing to support Roll20 and Fantasy Grounds into the future. He just didn't. And it, it is very possible they will continue to support it. We're going to see. We're going we're gonna to watch. And the, these indicators that we're going to watch are really careful indicators. But I can tell you this. He did not say... I, I commit to you and Wizards of the Coast commits to you that we will continue to support fantasy grounds and roll 20 with all of our current 5e products and with our material coming out for one DD. he did not say that and that means that those are in my opinion at risk of losing their content from wizards of the coast either you know the possibilities are they could remove content that they already have there probably not as likely but they could not put new content on there and that would be an issue too so we have to prepare for that and i think there's some things that we can do to prepare for that for those of us that, that use roll 20 and fantasy grounds i don't but other people do there are things we can do and we'll talk about that but here's the thing that hits me. These are two things that stick out to me when I think about this, that I, I focus on a lot. And one of them is that all of the things he said, and, and I want to make it very clear. I like Kyle. I, I have never heard of him before. And then I saw these interviews and I really liked what he said. And I think he looks, he looks from what I can see to be a very strong leader for the D&D team. And that's great. He's still working at Wizards of the Coast. He's still working for Hasbro. And this is my point that Whatever the reasons were, whatever this idea of like, oh, it's a good, you know, they were good things from good places that ended up going in a really bad direction. Whatever the reasons were, which were clearly bullshit, they, they did not, the, the reasons that they said they were doing this, which they feel like were genuine. Oh, giant corporations like Facebook are going to come after us, or we're going to see, you know, crazy neo-Nazi 5e RPGs, or nft scams the nft thing was really interesting because he didn't say he, no nfts he said no scamming nfts that was when teos was like oh you know you guys have nfts it's like, oh i don't we know we don't mean ours we mean scams which are all of them so it's just a technology i think is what he said nft is just a technology mm. so all of them are clearly bullshit and it takes one scrapey level to go down and be like you're the guys that came up with the hey dizzy you're the you have nfts and you are a major eight billion dollar or six billion dollar company so don't give us these reasons of, of of defending yourself regardless of the reasons though let's just put that aside regardless of the reasons somebody at wizards of the coast thought it was a reasonable idea to find an unintended loophole in the ogl and exploit it with the potential effect of screwing hundreds of ro other role-playing game publishers and either according to the client and they've been working on it for two years and either they weren't thinking about other rpg companies at all which is kind of what he claimed oh well we, we, we never wanted to hurt them so either they were willing to accept the damage that they were causing those other rpg companies or they weren't thinking about them at all and didn't think about them for two years that's not great. And they're still there. Neither of those options are good. And that group is still there. They were willing to exploit this loophole. It isn't a question of like, I know a bunch of people get caught up in the, well, they lied about it being a draft. I kind of don't care about that. That's secondary to the point that they were willing to clearly act in bad faith on this contract. They were willing to act in bad faith. And the way to know that to be the case is to ask him, did you think that the original version of the OGL was intended to be deauthorized? 
they're either going to lie to you and say, oh, yeah, we we think it was intended to be authorized. And when Ryan Dancy says, no, it never was. Or they're going to say, well, you know, legal legal things change. You were willing to, you know, act in bad faith on a contract. They were willing to act in bad faith on a contract because of these other fears. And maybe they actually did fear this stuff, but they obviously didn't fear it enough that when the whole chaos came down, they put it in the creative commons. So that's a whole different direction. That still bugs me. That idea that there are people there that are still willing to act in bad faith on a contract. And that gets to my second point, which is I had no idea they would be willing to act in bad faith like that. I did not. I, there was no part of me that thought that they would be willing to do that. So what else am I not thinking they'll be willing to do? What else could they do? What other kinds of, you know, I mean, this is sounds extreme and I don't, there's many good things they could do. We're going to talk about the good things that Wizards of the Coast can do. Things that they could do that will make our whole hobby better. And they've already done one. Putting the 5.1 SRD in the Creative Commons has made our hobby tremendously better. So we're going to talk about the good things. But then there's also like the, what are the other things that they might be willing to do if they're willing to act in bad faith on contracts on this? What other things might they be willing to do that could damage the RPG industry as a whole? And I, I think I'm thinking about this a lot. I'm, I'm, and I'm, I brought up some, but, and I don't know that I have all the answers. Cause again, I didn't have the answers two months ago. I had no idea this was going to occur. And even the people who were brought it up as a possibility, I was like, you're an idiot. Don't talk about that. And it turned out they were totally right. And I was totally wrong. So what else am I not thinking about? That's that doesn't keep me up at night. It's actually almost a fun question to ask of like, what else is out there that I'm not thinking about that really could damage the RPG industry. And I have a, I have a couple of thoughts on it. So what are the things that we could watch out for that would be bad signs? These are bad things that are the bad signs that show that that Wizards is still not really acting in good faith. And these are both things that they are in the full rights to do. And that is ending support for Roll20 and Fantasy Grounds. They could either end support and, and they could do it in a couple of ways. One is pull all the material back so you can't get any fifth edition material on it or and you can't get any of the official D material on it they can still use fifth edition because they still have the srd everybody does and now they have things like level up 5e and they'll soon have like black flag another one so they have other ways to to, to to run this but it's possible wizards of the coast could pull back official D material from roll 20 and fantasy grounds they could also stop publishing new material there so they could either only release some stuff there, like we only do adventures, but not, you know, if we do a new book of character options, we're not going to release that. Or they could not do 1D&D. They could say, we're not going to support new virtual tabletops with 1D&D. We're probably not going to know the answer to this for years because I think they will always certainly continue to support those platforms until they have their own VTT. And that might be a while. We don't know what's going to go on with that. That's a big question what they could do. The other one is that they could dork with or end support for the DMs Guild. I don't think they're going to bother, but again, what do I know, right? I didn't think they re ever removed the OGL. So who knows why they would want to do what they could do. But that's something they could do. Now, the interesting thing for both of these is I don't think they have to exploit a loophole in a contract to do either of these. They could just stop doing them. They are in a much better case to be able to do this than they were to revoke the OGL and they tried the OGL revocation. So, you know, these these things are things that are clearly legally in their in their corner, things they could definitely do. There's good arguments about why they won't, and we'll have to see. But I think these are things, again, we need to gird our virtual loins. We need to be prepared for you know, making sure that the RPG, that our, our world, our lives in the RPG industry are still strong, even if they were to do these things. And I can't really think of anything else that, that they could do. But I, I think, you know, there's some other things. So what are some of the good things? So, you know, Kyle talked about in, in, the, in the Three Back Halflings video, he said, how do you, you know, they asked like, how are you going to rebuild the trust? And he said, well, not through talk, not through things like this, but through deed, through specific things that we do. And I was like, okay, well, what would those be? What are some of the things that they could do that would help, help rebuild the trust? And, and for some, they build nothing. The answer is nothing. Right. And trust is, I, I talked about this last time. I don't know what trust means. It, it doesn't mean so much like they're, they're still a commercial company. They still have a profit driven thing. It means like trust them not to hose the RPG industry and trust them to be good neighbors, right? Trust them to be a good, a force of good in the hobby. That would be good. And there are some things that they could do. One thing that they could do in the short term is release the 3.5 SRD under a Creative Commons license. And he said he wanted to do that. 
right? He said that, yeah, we need to look through it and make sure we're not giving away the farm like they did with Strahd. But we, we want to make sure that we go through and don't give away anything that we didn't intend to give away. But we but we want to release the 3.5 SRD under the Creative Commons. That, that really, given that the 5.1 SRD is out there, I, I think it's not really going to affect a lot of us to have the 3.5 SRD under there. But there's a lot of material in there that people could probably use for other variants of fantasy role-playing games that would be useful. So I think having that out there, it's a lot of stuff. I have the 3.5 SRD under the OGL 108, which is still available and usable because they're not revoking the OGL 108. So it really doesn't change much for it to go into Creative Commons. But there's a lot of material in this, psionics and different classes and all kinds of things. You can actually, it's kind of hard to go find, but you can find it. And I'll put a link. I'll find a link and I'll put a link in the show notes below for the 3.5 SRD. It's actually in RTF files. It's not even in PDF. It's in, it's in rich text documents, but you can get it. So releasing that would be, would be a definitely a, a good, a, a sign of a good action. Another sign of a good action would be doing what he said, which is releasing one D&D material under a Creative Commons license. The problem is it might be years before we see that because one D&D is, you know, a year and a half away. And they're probably not going to immediately put that stuff out under a Creative Commons license. I wouldn't think so. I, I mean, it took two years to put out the 5.1 SRD after they had released the fifth edition of D&D. It probably won't take them as long this time or it shouldn't need to because they know they're going to do it. I think then it was two years for them to decide they were going to do it. Now they said they would. But the more material we see them release that makes one D&D backward compatible with fifth edition that they release into the Creative Commons so that people can write compatible products with both, that would be a really good thing. That would be a sign, in my opinion, that they are, again, being... And they're doing more than they have to, right? If they did that, I mean, like, again, Green Ronin doesn't do this with Fantasy Age and we don't yell at them. So the idea that they would, they, they could just say like, well, no, 1D&D is going to be, if you want to work with 1D&D, you would have to come to us and we'd have to have an informal agreement with you directly. We're not going to open up an SRD. They could have said that, but instead he did say, so now it's mostly holding him to his word. They did say that they would release 1D&D content under a Creative Commons license. So that stuff would remain backward compatible. But that could be like three pages of, of conversion. It might not be new classes and new spells and new monsters. It might be, that'd be great. And that would be a sign that like you really hurt us and you're really helping the industry again. If they were to put out a 5.2 SRD that contained new monster stat blocks that are in the new updated format for whatever they decide, new class descriptions that are with a new format, n n feats, like offering up actual feats, because they're not there aren't feats in the SRD. There's only one feat in the 5.1 SRD. New ancestries, the whole new way, and all the new vocabulary. If they release basically a 5.2 that was the one DD version of the 5.1, that would be a really good sign that they are, you know, at back to acting as a good steward of the brand, a good steward of D&D, and that they are working hard with the community. And it would help them because it means people would write stuff that's directly compatible with the product that they're putting out, which I think has helped them a lot over the past 10 years. So those would be signs. There, there, there are both other good paths that, could that they could take and there are other paths that they, they couldn't take. The two things that make Wizards of the Coast and D&D different than other fifth edition publishers are really in two specific things. One, they're the ones that put starter sets on target bookshelves and, and, and sell a lot of them. So they are the entry point of the hobby in a way that no other RPG really is the same kind of entry point, certainly not at that scale. So we care for them to bring new people into this hobby, and then we can show them the, 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 the wide wealth of material that they can have through many different companies. And the other one is D&D Beyond. That D&D Beyond is very, very popular, and it's a, it's, a, it's a locked in thing. And no other company, like I don't think Paizo has anything like that, and no other RPG producer has a platform that is so closely tied to their RPG that everybody primarily uses, I don't, you know, unless it's really small. But like, it's not true with Roll20 and Fantasy Grounds because Fantasy Grounds doesn't have an RPG. Roll20 made one, a Burnbright, but it's not exactly the most popular RPG they have there. So it's different. Like 50% of the games that are played on Roll20 are played by a system that isn't theirs. So it's different for D&D Beyond. So I still get back to like D&D Beyond is the lock-in and D&D Beyond is the thing that actually makes the monopoly for D&D more so than anything else. So, so those are some thoughts that I've got. Anyway, it was very interesting to see. I don't know if there's more information that, that's going to be coming out. I don't know if Kyle's doing more interviews. I think he's got like a pre, you know, everybody sort of has the same sort of questions. And I think that he's got his sort of preset answer. So I don't think we're going to learn too much more, but we'll see as, as the future goes on. And we're going to talk lots about the RPG industry, how not the RPG industry, but the RPG hobby. How do we make sure our hobby remains strong? And I think we're in really good, we're in a really good place. We're in a much better place than we were a month ago. 
And that makes me really happy. Let's take a look at two different Kickstarters. My friend Josh Perry, JVC Perry, has a new Kickstarter for Escape from Undergarden. This is, I don't think it's like a Feywildy sort of adventure, but it's certainly one that's sort of set out in the wild. And it's at a fifth level, a fifth level adventure. I think it goes from fifth to eighth level, 45-ish pages. Is that what he said? I think, I think it's like 45 pages. Yeah, 50 page long adventure. It is 12 pounds to support it. So about $18 for the PDF version of it. $20, $25 gets you the soft cover and PDF. I think that gets you, is that the, let's see, perfect bound full color print copy of Escape plus the additional, yeah. So that is that you, for, for that $25, you get the full thing. So that's, that's a pretty good range of price for an extra 10 bucks. You get the physical version. That's, that's, that's hard to beat. Looks like a really cool adventure. Beautiful, beautiful, you know, colors, really nice maps. And does he, I already know the answer to this but it's always fun. Free previews. Can you get the chapter for free? Josh, are you going to make me sign up and buy it through your web store? No, it goes straight to Google Drive and you can download the, the preview right here. So here is a preview of the adventure itself. I always find this very useful to see like, what does the layout look like? What does the art look like? I like it gives me a good idea. A lot of different Kickstarters that I look at, looking at the preview gives me a really good idea of like the quality of the kind of work that I'm, that I'm, that I'm going to get. So... I really, I really like to, to get this preview. And you can see very good, solid, beautiful design, beautiful artwork. Everything that I've gotten from, from, from Josh Perry, I've really liked. And I think this is a really, this, this kind of adventure really feels like it'd fit well into like a Margrave setting in Cobalt Press's Midgard world. That looks really cool. So if you were looking for a medium length adventure, like a 50 page adventure, sort of a medium length adventure, fifth to eighth level set in a town and the adventures going on around the town that have a lot of sort of influence into nature, I, I you know, probably not like direct Feywildy sort of stuff, but, but really good stuff. And, you know, check out the preview, take a look through his Kickstarter page escape from undergarden there's videos josh has started to put some youtube videos out so there's a bunch of youtube videos that talk about it as well so if you want to learn a little bit more before you drop your your 15 your 15 bucks you can take a look and if you want to find out more about this kickstarter and you want to back it i did back it it doesn't say i backed it here because I, I use my other browser for this but i did back it you can find out more in the show notes below Give it a, give it a, give it a check. That's Escape from Undergarden by, by Josh, by JVC Perry. The other Kickstarter that caught my attention is one, it's called the Encyclopedia 2 Lorebook and Toolbox for your 5e campaign. And when I first saw it, I was like, huh, I don't really, I don't really know much about this. And it's, a, it looks like a great big book. And then I recognized that, oh, this is done by Studio Agate. So Studio Agate really just came on my radar. Like Studio Agate is a French publisher, a French publishing group, and a number of different people that work there. And they had put together a 5e, not, not a variant, but like a, a 5e full uh, system called Fate Forge. And you can pick up, let's see, they have a picture of it in here somewhere. There's like, yeah, there they are. You can pick up Fate Forge in digital versions on Drive-Thru RPG. They are pay what you want. The, the price per book is set at kind of $20 a book, but it, I, I think it's reasonable that if you wanted to just take a look at them and see what they're like, you could pay less than that. Take a look at the material, decide if it's what you want. And if you were going to really keep them and use them, then you probably want to give them, you probably want to pay more than the $20. You can always go back and give them more. Fate Forge is actually four books that exist. And I'm going to link down to the drive-through the drive-through RPG side of it. I think they have it here as well. And it looks like as part of this Kickstarter, you can buy a physical version. And given that it is four great big books, they're more than 400 page books. And just the first Fate Forge books are four books alone. It's bigger than the, the books. Here, here's an example. Look at that crazy big slipcase. For 250 bucks, you can get the tet Tetralogy Collection. Is that five? I guess that's five. Yeah, it's the, the four books plus the, the 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 fifth book. So you get five books in one big volume. This one makes it look like it's only four. So maybe it's only four books. I'm not sure. I have to dive in. The one thing. So when I saw this Kickstarter, yeah, and so you, you can go and get the Fate Four Tetralogy is complete and available as a pay what you want on Drive Through RPG. So they don't have a free sample that you could just click and get, but they have all of their books available. Pay what you want. I'll give them a, I give them a pass. So they have the, they, they have like the Fate Forge Adventures book, which is sort of like your player's handbook without spells. The Grimoire, which is a book of spells. The Monster, Monster Compendium, which is a bunch of monsters. And then the first encyclopedia. I guess they have another creatures book too. I guess there's two creatures books that they have available. And it looks like well, the second one is not pay what you want. It's $25 for that one. But you can pick all of these up. And the encyclopedia 
is really the, and I have, I have it here, 365 pages. This is really the kind of product you're going to get from the Kickstarter that they're backing. And I didn't give it a, it's 350 pages, so I didn't give it a huge view. But in my skim, it's a, it looks really nice. I really like the idea of it. I, I like the idea that the, 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 the encyclopedia is mostly lore and descriptions of locations and things that are going on there. They look really cool. The one I, I had heard a criticism from somebody else. I wasn't able to verify this myself because I didn't, I didn't dive in too deep is that because the studio agate is a French publisher, their English may not be quite as strong as an English publisher who is you know native English speakers. But on the other side, there are French versions of all of these books. So they're reaching an audience that almost hardly any other third-party third party publishers reach. So just having a multilingual book at all is a really good way. In fact, it's a, it's a big way to expand this hobby that is hard to do. I don't, I don't do it. And it's very hard to expand out, but doing so can bring a lot, can bring a lot to it. There's one interesting angle that the Fate Forge and that this, this publisher takes, which is this, what they call them, their modular system. And the idea is that you could sort of wrap an entire theme around a campaign based on these ideas. So you have like action, corruption, dark, gritty, intrigue, life lock, magic lock, mind lock, mystery, and and throughout the books, all of the books, you'll see these icons that say for this kind of theme of your campaign, here is something that you may want to do. It's sort of like spreading a, a like these different lenses over the entire RPG system so that you can see like, oh, if I want to run a dark game, here are these new rules about how to make it run darker. Or, you know, there's the magic items that can by the mind lock icon greatly facilitate access to information that's making investigations much easier. If the leader wants the campaign to be focused on intrigue, leader is like a GM. The leader wants the campaign to be focused on intrigue and mystery with no possible shortcuts. They can restrict or even remove access to these spells. So it's like these plug-in options. This is, you talked about this with fifth edition originally, right? That you would, you would have these sort of plug-in options that can, that can completely change the overall theme of the, theme of the my browser slow. You can see that the design work is really, really good. The physical design of the book looks really, really cool. So what I would recommend, again, I, I'm brand new to this publisher. I haven't really dived deep into what they produce. I haven't used any of the material. One thing I did notice when I went to the, like the monster, the monster book, the first monster book is that it's primarily the monsters that are directly out of the 5.1 SRD with no changes. So there are a bunch of unique monsters that are unique to the setting that they've added in there, but they haven't changed the design overall. So it's not exactly like level up 5e where they really redid everything. Most of what is in here that makes it 5e compatible is is taken directly from the SRD and put in. So you're getting a lot of you're getting a lot of the material that we're all used to. But instead what you're getting, and, and I, I presume that one of the real benefits that when they did it is they were able to then translate it all into French so that they had a multilingual version of 5e that they could that they could bring to their to their audience. So that looks that looks really neat. So what I would recommend is going and checking out their products, specifically going and checking out their the, the the first compendium, which you can get pay what you want. They obviously they or the sorry the encyclopedia, right? They they talk about in this Kickstarter, hey, go check it out by checking out our compendium, which is pay what you want. Check it out, see if it's what you dig, and if it is what you dig, go ahead and back the Kickstarter, and you can get the compendium too. I did back the Kickstarter. I backed it for the one, the the, the PDF of the new one to see what they to see what they would have, and again, kind of explore it. The, to me, the artwork is absolutely phenomenal, and it looks it looks it looks really neat. So I'm always I'm always eager to see this, and I've had people come to me and say, oh, you should really check out what, what Studio Agate has done with Fate Forge because it is a full fifth edition game. So when we're talking, we talk all this stuff on this show recently about like, how do we make sure our hobby is strong? Well, the idea that we now, as far as I can tell, three current fifth edition variants that are very different from one another that are not published by Wizards of the Coast. The three that come to mind are Level Up Advanced 5e, obviously, Fate Forge, which we are just talking about, and then something like Five Torches Deep, which is a 5e variant that's really built to be like an old school game. It's much smaller than the other ones, doesn't make any less of game makes it interesting those are these new versions of 5e that we can enjoy and the idea that studio agate has a version of their own much bigger like you look at one and it's like a ten dollar for a 50 page pdf and then you look at this one and it's like 1600 pages or something like that so really interesting that we have all these different ways to get involved with 5e which really means in my opinion when what i'm enjoying about this and what makes what fills me with happiness and joy while i think about this is that 5e is its own existing rpg platform that is independent of any one publisher that's phenomenal and here's here's an example of that being the case so check out in the Encyclopedia 2 by Studio Agate, available on Kickstarter now. 
Let's do our first batch of questions from the Sly Flourish Patreon Q&A. REG says, I recently started a big 1 to 20 published adventure, and I am feeling incredibly intimidated and overwhelmed with the scope of the campaign. I've only run homebrew in the past, and I admit that running a published adventure would be both simpler and less work. I was wrong. Do you have any advice for dealing with that feeling of being overwhelmed? How do you take something with such massive scope and make it feel doable? Excellent question. First thing, which I think is important, which I think you, you, you picked up on here, and I think it's an important point to learn. Running a published adventure is not easier than running a homebrew adventure. And in some ways it is harder. And in some ways it offers you stuff that you wouldn't normally get from running your homebrew. It's a different thing that you're running, but it is not necessarily easier. So that, that you picked up. Running a one to 20 published adventure. So one thing, and I think I brought this up when I, when I answered this on Patreon, is not knowing which one you're talking about could kind of change this answer because there's not that many one to 20 published adventures. And most of them are like one to 12 or one to 16 for the big ones. But most of the time you can break them up into pieces. And most of the time you can focus on the piece that you're breaking up and, and only worry at a surface level about the stuff that's going to happen later on. So you still want to take, even when you're running a published adventure, you still, in my opinion, you ask, you, you ask me the question, so I'm giving you my opinion, but it's just one opinion of one person. So one way to think about this is to think about it in the same way as the other spiral campaign development, which is where are the characters right now? What are they doing? What's going to happen to them? Where are they going in the immediate term? And even in a published adventure, you can still like focus more. It's like, it's like focus and resolution. You want your deepest focus and your highest resolution on the things that are going to happen to them in the next session. And then you want to have a little bit more focus and, or a little bit less focus, but a little bit less resolution on what are going to happen in the next few sessions. But you don't need to know like every detail of every room and every part of the last part of your campaign. A lot of times campaign adventures, big campaign adventures, have lots, lots of locations, and lots of location descriptions. It's worth giving those a good skim read just so you can pick up the big beats. But you really don't need to know like every detailed room description of a room you're not running a long time from now. So if you look at like Tomb of Annihilation as an example, in Tomb of Annihilation, I don't have to worry about every detailed thing going on in Tomb of the Nine Gods when the characters are in Port Nianzaru. I really don't need to worry about it. If I'm running Empire of the Ghouls, and I am running Empire of the Ghouls, Empire of the Ghouls is a great big, great big campaign adventure written for by Cobalt Press. And when I ran chapter one, I really didn't need to worry too much about what happens in the later chapters. I really only needed to know what are the big beats of the game. And most good campaigns tell you up front what the summary of the campaign is. And the summary is worth knowing where it's generally headed. Who are the main players? Who are the main villains? What are they doing? What things... You know, what little hints do you want to give? What hints do you not want to give? But but really, you don't have to worry about the last part of the campaign. Focus on the game that's in front of you. Focus on the game that you're running next. Think about what you need for that. And it's really only like when you're filling out your secrets and clues and your other parts where you think like, oh, what secrets should I be plucking that are foreshadowing things that are happening in the future? And that, that feeling of being overwhelmed, you know, sometimes that's within us. And I know that what helps me break feeling overwhelmed is the refined system that I have of knowing what I need in order to run my next game. That helps me a lot. That's why I wrote it in Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. Your own list of things might be different, but having a system that you're comfortable with, that you feel like once I've done these five steps or eight steps or whatever, I feel good. I think that helps a lot of anxiety with, with game prep in general and can help here too. Joseph C says, I'm pitching different ideas to my players for campaigns for me to run since our last one ended. We had it narrowed down to three options and four of the five ranked one of the adventures, Drakenheim, as their first choice. And the fifth ranked that one last. How do you deal with situations where not everyone can agree on the best adventure? That's a good that's a good question. One thing is that I don't usually bring multiple campaigns to a group and ask them to pick one. I usually bring one campaign at a time. And, and it's usually the one I want to run the most. And then make sure they're okay with that one. And I don't think they've ever not been okay with that one. I think every time I brought a campaign forward and said, hey, how would you guys feel about running this? They're like, yeah, that sounds great. The, the, the nice thing there is that you don't have to worry about somebody not, I mean, only if somebody said, I really don't want to play that one. In this case, if somebody said, I don't really want to play that one, then you say, well, let me put that one aside and let me look at these other ones and see what you think there. I think it is worth talking to the person who didn't want it to find out why. And if it's if it's like, well, I don't know, I just didn't really like the theme. What you could do is try to find out the reasons they didn't want to play it and see if those are things that you can fix when you're running it because you have a lot of control over what you can fix. But if you hear what they're asking 
and you don't think the adventure is just going to work, then you might set one, one aside and look, and look for something else. But I, I don't think that, I'm not sure how, I, I think the problem that you run into when you bring multiple adventures forward is that people are going to get excited about one. And in your case, it was like four out of five said yes and one out of five said no. But it could have been two out of three. And it could have been three out of two liked one and two out of three liked the other. And then one, somebody's disappointed, right? Two people are going to be disappointed. So I think to me, the better way of bringing a, campaign to a group to ask if they're interested in playing is to do each one at a time and then run with the one, you know, based on your order of preference. And then the first time the group is like, yeah, that all sounds good. Then you should be good. If you do have somebody where it's like, I really just don't want to play that for whatever reason, you might say, okay, we're going to set that one aside. Right. But then you could also say, you know, do you want to talk a little bit about what you're worried about with this one or what you don't like about it? And if they're like, I really don't like that whole theme at all. I don't want to do anything with Drakenheim and dark cities and stuff like that. I just played a dark city one. Then maybe you go, okay, well, let's pick a different one. But if they're like, I just tentacle horror, I don't really dig. They're like, well, maybe we'll take the tentacle horror back a little bit. Yeah, it might be hard to do a Drakenheim. Drakenheim's got a lot of tentacle horror. So Joseph, I hope that helps answer your question. Brooke says, it is always, it has it always taken you an hour or so to prep it for a game? How do you get to the point where you could generate ideas so quickly and feel confident running them? So those are two interesting questions together. No, I haven't always spent an hour prepping games. And in fact, I don't, sometimes I spend more than an hour prepping games now. It depends on what I'm prepping. If I'm doing a really nice, fun Dwarven Forge setup with all the minis and I'm setting it all up on my table and I got all this kind of fun stuff and I need to get all the books set and, you know, then it can, it can take more than an hour. Going through the eight steps typically never takes me more than an hour. That those eight steps help me kind of get through it. And for me, it's about, it's fine to, it's fine to spend an hour on it, on it. But like, to me, having the critical stuff up front, knowing that if I only had a half an hour, could I get through my prep? And then if I have more time, I can spend it. And I wrote an article about like, what would it be like to spend an entire day prepping an RPG game? Let's see if I can find this here. So this is a fun one. I actually got this when Matt Colville started his company and he talked about how there was one time when he was running one of the games for his, for his streaming thing. And he's like, all I have to do today is prep this game and I have all day to do it. And I was like, wouldn't that be cool? And so I actually did that. I said, I'm going to spend an entire day. My only thing to do that day is prep for a D&D game. What's that going to be like? And I, I went through like a whole bunch of different things. And what I found was a lot of the stuff that I did really didn't... And some stuff did, but a lot of stuff, like one thing I did is I got all, this was when I was running Ghost of Saltmarsh and I went and printed all of the maps out on blueprint paper, went down to Staples, got that, had them all printed them out, brought them all home and it was reasonably priced. And I think I used like two out of like 12. I really didn't end up using those maps because it's like they didn't even go to the places that I printed maps for. So I spent like a couple of hours on maps and some money and ended up not even using, not even using that stuff. Then there was other stuff that that was really useful. So in the bottom of this article, I talk about what are the things that really were useful? Making nice handouts was really useful. Coming up with maps, but really the maps that you're going to use in the short term is useful. Finding the right minis is useful, but the, the further out you're prepping, the more you're not going to need it. So there was definitely a diminishing return with the amount of time that I spent on prep. And I'll link to this, I'll link to this article because it was a fun, it was a fun time. There's a couple, you know, three years ago that I did this, almost three years to the day. The other question about how do you get, generate ideas? So there's a few, two things, and, and I talk about this in Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. Two things that I think really help fuel ideas is one is absorbing lots of good fiction, TV shows, video games, movies, books, audiobooks. absorb good fiction, find good fiction, fill yourself up with it you know, as often as you can. Get off the social medias and go watch fun Netflix shows or read a fun book or whatever. Find ways to absorb good fiction. Bring that in. This is Stephen King's thing, but it's really works. Fill your mind up with characters and locations and concepts and scenes and ideas and all that. The other one is random tables. I really like using random tables, random scenarios. And I tried to pour a lot of that into the lazy DMs companion. So if you're looking for ideas to help generate things for your group, or for your game, consider taking a look through the Lazy DM's Companion, but you can also look through other random tables. The Dungeon Master's Guide has a lot of random tables. I love the stuff that Raging Swan puts out. Look at Raging, Raging Swan's products for some of my favorite random tables. There's lots of different sources for random tables that you can kind of roll on to give you ideas about where to take your game. So those, Brooke, those are really the big ones, the big ones that help me. 
Michael says, do you have any advice on how to effectively run short sessions that are approximately two to two and a half hours in length? The game sessions happen every other week. How do you suggest balancing gameplay, character development, story progression within these short, shorter time frames while also ensuring the characters can pick up where they left off and maintain their engagement in the game? So my games are three hours and really they end up being like two and a half after we talk in the beginning and we take a break in the middle. So they're really kind of like two and a half effective hours of the game. And there are a few things that have helped me. I, I never feel like those are too short. I feel like those are just fine. I feel like we get a lot done. I did have some players recently in the game who were like, I really like more time to be able to do kind of more role playing so we're not rushed all the time. And I get it, but it's also like, you know, it can be harder to fit four hours into a game than it does to fit three. So I, I, when I run a three-hour game, I don't run into those. But there's a few things that I think can really help. Some of these are like things you can control. Some of these are things you might have a harder time controlling. One is fewer players. If you can run with four or five players, that's better than six. If you can run with three, to f three four or five players, you get a lot more done than you do if you have six or more players. So in my sessions, I have I, I regularly have six, but if anybody isn't showing up, we run anyway. So it's not uncommon to run a game with only four or five players. I've I've had sessions recently. We just had a session on on Wednesday where we only had four players, and it meant a lot got done in that four in the in that time because fewer fewer players means less screen time being spread across multiple characters, and it means you get more done. That can be hard to do, though. You got the players you have. The only thing I'd recommend is if you have a, a, a high number of players, play even if they're not able to show up. Say, we're going to keep going anyway. And, you know, don't always plan on everybody having to be there for every session. Another one, which is, you know, as a controversial, it certainly is in some circles. Ensure that every battle... When you, it, a lot of it is in combat, thinking about combat. And there's a few things with combat you can do. One is run easy battles. Run battles where they're fighting a fewer number of monsters that are weaker than the characters are. Let them have fun blasting away weaker monsters. That's something a lot of DMs don't do. They make every battle challenging. That means they're longer. doesn't mean you don't have a big boss fight, but you know, I, I, I expect that DMs are undervaluing easier so don't be afraid of making some encounters with easy, including really easy ones. You guys are six level six characters and you're facing two bandits. That's okay. The other thing is to be comfortable running battles without a battle map. Be Use abstract maps, use theater of the mind combat, but make some of the battles that are more straightforward where the, the room isn't really that complicated and then the, the different types of monsters, there might only be one type of monster, that be comfortable running those in theater of the mind. And that speeds up things considerably. It makes it a lot faster to use, to use, to, to make things, to make things easier. So those, those are a couple. The other one is like, have your strong start, like jump right into the game. Use, use that, that sort of, oh, what is it called? In media res, uh, use in media res, like jump into the middle of the story, get, get rid of the intro. Don't start with them like in a town, wandering around, buying stuff. Throw them in a situation right away. Throw them in, in, in the situation that is going to matter to the game so that they're in the middle of it now. And if they have things like, oh, I really wish I had a chance to go buy some potions. Say, you, you had had that opportunity. If you wanted to have bought potions, you could have bought potions. And then you can kind of take, you know, some of it off the table. Think about when you're looking at your scenes for like a two-hour game, you're going to get maybe three scenes so think about what those scenes are and what options are available and think about how you can put more of the pillars into those scenes. How do you draw the characters into them? How do you give them the opportunity to learn things, even if it's in a fight, all that kind of stuff. So you can, two hours is about the, the, the minimum amount of time where you're going to be able to run a game that's going to feel like a good game. Three hours though, I've been running three hour games now for many, many years. And I, I find that I get plenty done. I feel like I feel like we get a lot done. I ran I ran a three hour game on Wednesday where they did an entire heist rescuing six prisoners from a dungeon and dealing with all of the people that were there from the time that they climbed their way out of the well in the center of the courtyard to the time that they escaped and ran off. We got that whole thing done in three hours. And it was really, really cool. And the reason why is that we had four players, so it was faster. They knew what they were going to do. We started right in the middle, and everything went great. Friends, that is it for the Lazy RPG Talk Show today. I want to thank all of you for hanging out with me. If you enjoyed this show and you want more material like this, you can subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. You can sign up for free, and you get a free Adventure Generator PDF and a weekly RPG-related article sent directly to your inbox. You can also support me 
directly on Patreon. It's a very low price and you get a whole lot of material. People often talk about, oh, it's such a tremendous deal. You get the City of Arches Sourcebook, which I talked about earlier, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, access to the dedicated Discord channel and access to the monthly Patreon Q&A. You can also pick up any of my books at the Sly Flourish bookstore. All of the links to those are in the show notes below. Thank you all very much. Have a great day and get out there and play an RPG.